Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I'm Ben Duncan, and on this podcast, I will be interviewing prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana. In today's episode, I'm joined by Farhad Akhtar. Fahad is a Salesforce Certified Technical Architect and also the Global CTA Academy Lead for Accenture. He is based out of Melbourne in Australia and through the episode we hear more about what Fahad had initially wanted to work as and why, then how he found his way into the Salesforce ecosystem and what his early projects and roles were like. We then hear more about Fahad's move to Australia the projects he was exposed to at that time, and how he made the step up from technical consultant to technical architect. Fahad shares more about his own CTA journey, what he learned along the way, and how he stayed motivated to achieve his goal. We then discuss how he is helping other aspiring CTAs within Accenture and the tips and advice he shares with them along the way. So a really interesting insight into Fahad's career and journey, and it's great to hear more about how he is helping other aspiring CTAs on their journey and give some insight into the internal academy that he is now running globally. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you do, please do subscribe for future episodes that are coming through. Fahad, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thanks for inviting me. I'm very excited to chat. We've collaborated on some content before for Virtual Dreaming, so I heard a little bit about your story then. But I'm keen to go a bit deeper and, and find out a bit more about you and, and your role and, and journey through the Salesforce world. So let's start right back at the beginning and even before Salesforce. So from my research, I can see that you studied computer engineering. What was the idea behind that? What kind of got you passionate about computer engineering and going down that path? So. Sure. In reality, I actually wanted to study uh, telecommunication, and I applied for a, in a university in Pakistan in, in telecommunication engineering, but I only got admission in computer engineering, which I didn't want to study, which was my second choice of faculty. But then once I got the admission due to assignments and uh, we were building some hardware, which got me interested in computer engineering. And then after two years, I had a choice of changing my faculty and going into telecommunication. But then I decided to stay in computer. So that's the, that's the reason behind how I got into computer engineering as a, as a curriculum or subject. Uh, but my first interaction with computer was when I was in my school. I was in ninth class and in a school laboratory. Every week, you would get one hour in front of computer. That was my first interaction with computer. And all of our class fellows would get together, and we would, in MS Paint, make some diagrams and things and, and fill circles and put colors in it. And it interests me before I actually got into computers or I thought of making a career out of computer. But once I got into computer engineering, as I said, in university, I think I never wanted to go in, in any other field. Sure. So what, um, when you were planning to go into telecommunications, what was the initial kind of career goal? What were you looking to do long term? So at that time, uh, early 2000, there was a telecommunication boom in Pakistan. And in Pakistan, like when a fresh, you know, a 12th standard student comes fresh out of college something, the first thing that's in their mind, what can get me a job? Uh, what can I study? And at that time, because of the telecommunication boom in Pakistan, it was like a short, short thing. If you would, you would land a job. And that was my reason of studying telecommunication as well. There was nothing that interested me. I didn't even knew what I'm going to study. And I think it, it was a blessing in disguise when I didn't get the admission. I got into computers and I'm, and I'm happy where I am. 
Sure. So what was your first role out of studying? Uh, what was your first uh, role in the in the real world, I guess? So after I completed my computing degree, I had as many jobs as I could potentially find. Like whatever role I found online, I was applying for in Pakistan. And as I said, I was not very clear in terms of what exactly I want to do. I was, you know, I was whatever I was finding, I was applying. Then I found a couple of roles. Uh, one was a database analyst with a wired goods manufacturer in Pakistan to analyze their data. And then another was one uh, was a hardware job to build aircraft simulator for Pakistani Air Force. And uh, as I said, in my uni days, I thought I have an interest in hardware. That's the reason why I accepted that role. And I started that job. I probably went there for a week. And then I said, no, I don't think hardware is, is something that I want to do in long term. And a week later, I decided to quit that job without even having a second job. I didn't even knew at that time what I'm going to do, but I was very sure that hardware is not what I want to do. It was because of the environment as well. I didn't enjoy the environment and the people, you know. And then I left the job. And for a couple of months, I didn't have any job. And then um, I applied for a CRM consultant role with, uh, with an American company. And then I got into CRM world. Nice. So that's um, Tektronic, right? Uh, that's with Tektronic. They were previously, uh, when I joined them, they were a different company. They've rebranded a couple of times. Back in the days, that company name was Seconent. And they were implementing Siebel for American clients, and they were doing some local work as well. But because of recession, they lost all of their big, big projects. And there was no, nothing big. And there were about 10, 15 people, and they have to let go pretty much half of the team. And they hired a couple of fresh graduates. So at that time, there was nothing big. All of us, we were searching for work in freelancing websites, and we were also self-learning different CRM tools and applications. So I self-trained myself on Sugar CRM, Salesforce, CRM on Demand, and there was another not-for-profit CRM system called Blackboard. So I trained myself on three, four CRM systems just in case, you know, whatever type of work I'm in so I can, I can work on those projects. And then uh, I got into a Blackboard CRM project, and then I worked on it for a year. And uh, the, the reason I moved from Blackboard to Salesforce was because Blackboard was a .NET application, and it can take you up to a couple of days to just install it. And at that time, you know, my colleagues were working on Salesforce, and I could see that, you know, their life was perfect. They don't have to install anything. Everything works on cloud. And that was my reason to say, you know, I don't want to work on this Blackboard application because it can take you a couple of weeks to just install it. And I just want to work on this cloud, you know, cloud application. It, it's so cool. And that's how I got into Salesforce. And just to touch on uh, Sakonin, like they had some pretty incredible talent as well coming out of Karachi, right? Because there's the, a lot of the team have come to Australia. Like I've come across a number of people that come um, out of that business. So uh, at the time, was that the, the kind of premier Salesforce or CRM consulting business in the region? Or was it just, just so happened that they were able to, to bring through some really talented people? I think uh, it, it was because uh, when we started, we started very early working on Salesforce. I remember my first Salesforce implementation was actually for a diamond store in Korea because we found that work online on a freelancing website. And we were building the visual force pages at that time. When it was like there was no community, uh, there were visual force, there was basically S control. So we were building HTML and JavaScript pages basically. That was you know back in 2009. So we started very early. We had the first exposure of the, uh, of the product 
some of those guys got their hands on onto the product and platform very early. So second was not doing any anything locally in Pakistan or in the region. At that time, even we were when when we started picking up, it was a it was a US based company. We were doing initially when we were working on civil, we were working on US based implementations. But in, in the recession, we were sort of finding work online, and we were, we were doing pretty much whatever we were finding. But I think when things got back on the track, we started doing uh, US based implementation. Actually, one of my first implementation, which was which was a huge Salesforce implementation. So, in 2012, I did a 1600 user Salesforce project, and at that time, that project was 2.6 million. It was extremely complex implementation that we were running out of Karachi. We were delivering all of that. It was so complex that we had pretty much hit all sort of Salesforce limits at that time, and we were somehow working around it. And that was a project. Once I completed it, I actually was able to secure a, a role in Australia. Sure. So what was the uh, what was it like? So at what point was that when you moved to Australia? 2012. So the, the timeline is that I started working for second and in 20, 2009. Yeah. For about a year, I would say somewhere somewhere between the start of 2011, I was working on Blackboard CRM. I was working on not for project clients like CTO for March or Dan, those sort of you know clients in US. And then after 2011, I got into Salesforce and I was doing very small Salesforce implementation. At that time, Salesforce the platform was not enterprise ready. So we were doing a small implementations for a small you know, type of companies. And then start of 2012, when I first started working on a, on a large Salesforce implementation, I, I, I would even say it was like a multi-regional implementation. We had team in US, Pakistan, and India all working together. And that was my most complex implementation back in Pakistan. Would you have classed yourself as a developer at that point? Or what was your role on that project? On, on that project, I was actually a senior developer and, and an architect, an offshore architect. So I was sort of uh, leading a team of architects and testers in Pakistan. We had one or two offshore architects. We had an engagement lead who was in, in US, and I was a senior developer and an architect. But as you can imagine, by the time things used to get to Pakistan for delivery, there were very less decisions that you can take as an architect. So I was taking more of a development decisions or I would say build decisions rather than architectural decisions. Sure. So then 2012, you come to Australia. I guess you, you secured a role before you came. But what was the, the market like? Immediately, was there a lot of opportunity in the market for you? When I started looking for jobs in Australia, actually, I initially started looking for roles outside of Pakistan. There was no, no such target to come to Australia. So I, I got you know opportunities from Dubai, from Malaysia. There was a company, one or two companies in Singapore. They were interested. And then I was being interviewed by about two to three companies in Australia at that time. And then a couple of companies were had problems because of the visa sponsorship that was needed for me to come over. But then one company, ProQuest, agreed to, to sponsor me. And that's how I came to Australia. Sure. So at that point, I guess, I mean, 2012, thinking I, I wasn't in the market at that point, but the project you delivered from Pakistan just at that stage was probably more complex than, than what was happening in Australia at that time? Yes, I would say because to work on a similar type of project in Australia took me another three years to basically work on a similar type of complexity uh, or a similar type of project in Australia. And it was because of the size of the companies as well. Second, at that time, it grew from 10 people in 2010 to, to about 100 people in 2012. They had a massive growth because of Salesforce in, in 2012. So when I came over here, 
Second again was a small company. They were doing small, small gigs. And this is probably the reason why after working for, for them for about a year, I didn't enjoy. And then I moved to Cloud Shirtless. Sure. So then, so in in uh, Karachi, you were making decisions uh, in the role of a developer, really. Like you were, were, your title was architect, but a lot of the decisions had been made by that point. So how how did you then come to Australia and make that transition from technical consultant to technical architect? Like, what what did it take for you to get that opportunity, and how did you kind of get your your hands on that? Yeah. So when I when I came over here for a couple of years, I was working as a as a developer, as a senior developer. And then uh, at CloudShippers, I got promoted as a technical architect role. And and if you if you really ask me, I think I got the title architect before I actually became one. And you know, one of the challenges that I had, and I explained it to every developer that we have in Accenture would try and become an architect. That because of the shortage of developer skills, even every time you'll try and become an architect or try and you know position yourself as an architect, you'll get pulled back because of the development skills needed onshore. And the transition, the way it happened for me that I started contributing to architecture. Um, I started going in design, I started contributing to the design document. I started pointing out things which I can improve. I started pointing out the areas where we probably need a design change. And that's how slowly and gradually I started getting into the meetings where architectural decisions are being taken. I started getting engaged very early in the project phases rather than right in the delivery. I was being engaged in sales. I was being engaged in in early design. And then I was being, you know, of course, delivering the project anyway. So that was probably a tough transition. And it didn't happen because my title changed. It happened because I made a couple of deliberate decisions and then crafted and planned the journey from developer to an architect. And that's how I actually became an architect. So that was obviously a strategic decision of yours to say, right, I can't just get an architect role. I need to show that I'm ready. What what gave you the confidence, though, that you were ready? Self-study. So there were mentors and coaches as well who I can see and aspire. Of course, there were people like Stephen, Andrew, and David Thomas who were, who were in, in CloudShapers and Accenture. And they were, of course, by that time, they were certified technical architects as well. So I was, of course, getting coaching and mentoring from them. And, and I was also self-learning as well things, which I was then applying on my project and I was showcasing that I've got the Salesforce knowledge and I know how this application is working in an enterprise ecosystem. And then, of course, because I was showing that credibility, I was being invited to meetings and, and places where those sort of strategic decisions were being taken. Sure. This is a, an interesting question I'm going to ask because there, there seems to be such a rush for people to go from senior developer to technical architect, like everyone wants to make that leap really quickly. But is that something you can rush or, or is it is it something that only really comes with experience? And in your experience, is it better that you take that move slowly and build up to that point? I, I think because of the of the demand in the ecosystem, I have I've seen a lot of people going from senior developer to technical architect. Like I work with them and one day they're developer, the other day they are architect because they've got this title. But I think it is it is not good for the overall ecosystem that you know someone who is just developer and has not really made the transition, and they are they are you know being positioned as a, as a technical architect. It's not good for the project that we work on. It's not good for the ecosystem. I would say someone should spend time in the ecosystem and and work in an architecture role and get mentored by someone who is an architect before they can be positioned or being promoted to to that title. Is it fair to say like having a mentor and having people to look up to has been really a key for you making that transition? And do you think people can do it without a senior person to learn from 
I, th I think we, every, everyone gets opportunity to become an architect on the projects that they work on. But I think for me, the journey was a lot easier because I was surrounded by people who are more experienced. And of course, they were CTA and architect. Um, they were playing CTAs and architects role before me. That definitely helped me. I, it helped me in understanding, uh, you know, how to handle different types of situation, not just not just technical challenges, but like people and, and different situations as well. So uh, someone can become become a CT or a technical architect without having mentors. It may just take them a little longer. They may just may, they will make a couple of mistakes along the way. But I think you can still become an architect if you don't have any mentorship. Sure. So um, the CTA, obviously, it's a, a well-known thing. Uh, everyone seems to be aspiring to that goal right now. But at what point in your journey from 2010-11, kind of carving your way into this CRM world and then obviously progressively taking on more and more complex Salesforce piece of work, at what point was CTA something that you said, I'm going to be a CTA? When the certification came out in 2012, I thought, you know, this is something that, you know, I'm, I'm definitely in my career going to make sure that I become a technical architect. But it was like more of a wish in 2012 than a target or a goal. I think it became my goal in 2016 when, you know, in 20, 2015, um, I got the title as a technical architect. I started working towards it. I started positioning myself as an architect. And in 2016, I thought, you know what, I'm ready. I think I've got all the knowledge. I've been working as a HONA project as a technical architect. It's the time I think now I'm going to attempt it. And uh, it took me a, a good year and a half before I, I made my first attempt at it. So, yeah, that's the whole story. And looking back to when you did start, like when you, when you, uh, 2016, when you, you started working towards it, what was your weakness? I think my weakness at that time was not technical knowledge because I had enough experience working on the platform that, you know, I was, I was technically very sound at that time. I, you know, I knew what I, what I was doing. I think my, my challenge at that time was because I was just making the transition to technical architecture, I, I you know, I've not faced client or client architects enough. I've not presented a technical architecture story or my communication um, were were not as strong as they are now. That was the area that I had to work most on. And when I when I talk about very particularly storytelling is when you present architecture, architecture is a, is a very dry and boring subject. And you have to make, as an architect, you have to make it interesting by building a story. So if someone listening to you for 45 minutes, they should be able to understand where you are starting and where you are finishing. And it needs to flow through. And that's the area that I was lacking when I was presenting because I was presenting bits and pieces. But it was very hard to kind of you know bring it in as, as one solution. And then the second thing is communication. The, the communication challenges that I had as part of my CT exam was that when judges ask you a particular question, you first need to understand why exactly they are asking me this question. What, did, what do they really want to hear? Because you can answer one question in many ways and you would think that I've answered it. But in reality, you really need to understand why they are asking this question and try and answer it in 15 seconds or less. So be very clear and concise, and still try and answer exactly what they're asking for. Now, this is this is yeah. what I have to learn. That's the hard part, right? Being clear and concise, but getting enough detail in, but not too much. Yeah, and see, you can always ask and say, if you want, I can go on for more, because one solution you can have, like, when it comes to, let's say, well, let's pick one area, solution architecture and CT exam, you can have, five or six solution to one problem. And you can justify probably each each of the solution by making some assumptions. Now, the hard part is that how can I put forward all six solution, put my justifications and recommend one solution? And you have to do it by practice. 
Sure. So was there anything you did that wasn't kind of textbook um, in order to improve your storytelling and communication? Like, I guess there's role plays and, and mock review boards and things like that. But was there anything that you found helpful that wasn't like the standard way of improving those skills? I think one thing that I like uh, mentorship and, and mock exams really helped me. One thing that I also uh, now coach all of my mentees as well, whoever I'm helping right now, is to always try and think from your just perspective. If someone is like, if I'm a judge, uh, the way CT exam works, you've got six sections. Most of my candidates, they try and jump through between sections. They are solving one requirements in data model, then the other requirement they're talking about dev lifecycle or solution architecture or system architecture. As a judge, it becomes very difficult for me. They're human beings as well. So I always try and tell them this human aspect of the exam. Imagine there's a human being sitting on the other side, make their life easier as well when you are solving a scenario, you're presenting a scenario. So that aspect helps all of the candidates. Yeah, the previous objective was, I'm just gonna go there, I'm just gonna dump everything that I know, I'm just gonna solve it, put it there and just leave. The other aspect is that, how can I make it easier for the judges so that they can pass me? And if you look at the exam from that perspective, it's really gonna help you. Yeah, that sounds uh, sound advice, I think, actually. And and also going back to the story, it's probably a lot of people don't see it like that. They see it as an opportunity to talk and say how much you know, rather than to, to articulate in a way that's going to actually be an enjoyable experience for the person on the other side. This episode of Talent Hub Talk is sponsored by our friends from Flow Republic. Flow Republic is a Salesforce Architect Academy that works with individuals and businesses to upskill and prepare Salesforce architects for the CTA Review Board. They also have a number of other offerings, including coaching and guiding on areas such as soft skills, consulting, and design training. Flow Republic are some of the brightest minds in the Salesforce ecosystem and have a proven track record of developing Salesforce professionals and helping architects to reach their goal of becoming a CTA. To find out more about the value they can add, please check out flowrepublic.com. So uh, how did the whole CTA journey play out for you? What were the ups and downs along the way? So, as I said, it started in 2016. Um, I made a couple of attempts and those attempts were not successful. Then I had one partial pass and the partial pass you know, didn't succeed as well in the end. And then my final attempt, I, I was basically able to mail the exam. So it was lots of ups and downs. I actually thought of uh, basically abandoning the whole, whole journey as well. Uh, but my family, my colleagues, you know, they kept me motivated and they, they made sure that I reached towards the end. In terms of the skills, my technical knowledge helped me along the way. But I think the, the component that was missing, which I was gaining experience over time, was real life project experience experience and working on my communication and presentation skills uh, was the key. And once I was able to, you know, get, get things together, I was able to pass the exam. Sure. The the perseverance, I think, is one message I get from a lot of people that I speak to that have done the CTA because often people don't pass first time, but in their mind, like when they're preparing for it, like it must be so hard to go again because you have to redo everything you've done, right? You've, you've invested so much time and so much effort and then you have to do it all again. How do you stay motivated with that? How do you ensure that you do come back and, and go again? It is uh, it is a very emotionally draining process. It it gets all your energy, and it is it is to be honest, it's it's easy to say. I mean, just stay motivated, go back again. 
it's it's very hard to go back to this exam again. The whole process from registration to showing up to the review board, even the hardest parts once you've attempted the exam, that four weeks delay before you get your result. And then, you know, to absorb that result back and then go back again, it's, it's all very difficult. I wish everyone passes exam on their first attempt, which most candidates don't do. I think just trust yourself. If you If you know you are an architect, and you deserve this credential because you know you have the skill set. I think that that is what kept me motivated. I always thought, you know, I have the skills. Uh, it's just a matter of time. I just need to stay motivated. And I was getting the same message from my colleagues and my family as well. You know, just stay motivated. Um, you know, go again. You have our support. Accenture was very supportive in terms of finances and and you know giving me study leaves. Um, my managers were very supportive. So. I think all of the all of the you know people around me were very supportive, and that gave me the confidence that you know I can get it. It's just a matter of time, and that's how I kept attempting it. Sure. Obviously, I I just found my app builder, and uh, I mean it's completely you can't compare the two at all. But the deflation that I had from failing, I can't even bear to look at any revision again for that for however long. And and it's such a small piece of revision in comparison, and the time effort and so on. But you feel so deflated when you you don't pass anything that you set out to pass. But I think having people around you that encourage you and and also can see potential in you, right? You had mentors that knew that you could achieve it. Therefore, they encourage you and, and push you on that path. Yeah, I think that was that was the most important thing because it, even one mock review board takes you a whole day. And it's so much personal and professional time that you invest, like your your working hours and also your personal hours as well. Even just to do one more review board, it can take you the whole day. And before every review board, you are you are you know you're supposed to do you know, multiple mock review boards. And yeah, it is it is just because of the people around me they were motivating me. It was the reason why I could attempt. So tell me how it felt when you found out you'd passed. Oh, it was. Uh, uh, I think I, I would say I almost cried. I mean, it was after so many years of hard work, you, you achieve something that you always wanted. I was like, I, I was standing and I immediately sat down. I was like, okay, I think I need to relax emotionally, absorb this, and absorb this this message that I've just gotten that I passed exam before I could say anything. And uh, yeah, it was it was a nice happy day. I think I still remember, if not, if I'm not wrong, I think it was 18th of November, 20, 2019, when I passed my review board. It was one of one of the most important dates of my life, I would say. Yeah, for sure. So what's what's changed since? Um, what What's changed about your day-to-day and kind of role you play now? I think my, my responsibilities have changed. Uh, people look up to you as a CTA, someone who knows platform in and out. So you get asked different you know questions from, from the team around you. My role personally, I was previously working on one project. Now at one client, I'm working on multiple projects. So I think the, the portfolio project that I'm managing, so that has changed in terms of responsibility. Uh, apart from that, the expectation from Excel, you know, by Accenture and the CTA program that I was part of was that once I would become the CTA, I would coach and mentor, uh, you know, my candidates once I pass, which which I've done. I've got, um, you know, I've got a couple of candidates which I'm mentoring right now locally here in Australia. And I've also taken up the role of uh, Global CTA Academy Lead uh, for Accenture, which means I will be managing the CTA programs across across the regions as well. 
Apart from that, I'm more engaged in, in sales deals. So I, I make sure that I, I go on different sales deals and make sure that the solution that we are that we're positioning is is basically something that can be built onto the platform. And what what about how you feel now? Like, does it just give you that extra level of confidence that you know just having that credential? Do you go into a discussion now with a CTO or you know an enterprise architect at a customer and just have a hundred percent confidence in your ability to articulate the the right solution? For that customer, or did you have that anyway? I think having having the CTA title with you it gives you that immediate recognition in the industry and market and the person that you're dealing with. Like they, they take you a lot more seriously than if you don't have that credential. So that's for sure. But I think I I had that confidence even before I became the CTA because I was it was not that the title has changed the way I solution. I was always solutioning it that way, and I was always putting that rigor in my solution before. And after I became a CTA, uh, but I think it's the other person, the way they perceive you have, have definitely changed. Sure. So what, what goes into the academy now in terms of effort to get someone from start to finish? Like, what's the time effort on your part? And, and what does that kind of journey look like for, for mentoring someone through the process? So time effort, it is is at least two hours a week. It is a lot. And this is just like the way I, I mentor people, I, I divide them in group and I coach them common things in group. And then I take them onto an individual journey. Once someone um, in Accenture becomes an application or system architect, they get automatically enrolled into a CT development program and they get assigned a mentor of themselves. So they can always go to them, ask questions, schedule mock review board. The way I personally coach people is I first explain the study guide to them, what this exam is all about. Then I take them section by section, explain line by line different objective, what you're expected to do in this particular objective, and then so on and so forth. So this is all study guide. That can take you like a month to just explain an expectation and then let them identify their gap areas, things that they've not worked on, things that they know nothing about. And then once that happens, then uh, help them prepare a presentation flow, help them prepare uh, their artifacts, uh, You know, check their, the quality of their artifacts, if they are annotating, if their diagrams are large enough, if they are putting all sorts of labels and everything. And once all of that is done, and we believe candidates have closed out the gap that we identified earlier, that's when they are ready for a mock review board. So once they complete a mock review board, we give them feedback. We at least try and conduct three mock review boards because before we say someone is ready for the actual review board. The really candidates are ready after three. We have to go maybe three, sometimes five, or even more review board. And we increase the judge. So when they've completed initial mock review board, uh, we try and you know invite more judges internally sometimes two, sometimes three judges to give them cross-judging cross feedback as well. And then I think that whole process can take somewhere between six to nine months. And after the end of the process, you are you're good to go. You make your first attempt. If you pass or partial pass, good. If, if not, then we rotate you. We, we give you another, another mentor to, to give you a different perspective on mentoring. And you start that whole journey again. Yeah, nice. So is it completely common for someone to be completely overwhelmed when they do their first mock review board? For for other people listening to this that have maybe tried one recently or are about to and are really nervous, like, is that just normal? Like, it's not something people have faced before. So most people are overwhelmed and, and struggle or do you see people nail it? I've never seen anyone nailing it, at least for the first time. I think uh, everyone is uh, super super confused or nervous when they get their their first you know mock even mock i'm i'm, I'm going to talk about mock uh, every time i hand over somebody a mock and say you know there were two hours or now three hours to solve this i mean i, I find a lot of people get nervous their hands are shaking 
Sometimes their artifacts are not complete. Rarely somebody on their first mock finish on time. They are out of time, or they like at, at times they've got nothing in the in the presentation, just something that they want to talk about, and they believe they can talk it through. So I get all sorts of different reactions, but like I don't think anyone has ever nailed it in the first attempt. And obviously, we touched on storytelling, but is there anything else that is like a consistent problem that people, you know, need to overcome, or, or consistent feedback that you're giving to people over and over? I think since I've become a CTM and I work with people who are, you know, a junior, I would say, and they don't have a lot of architecture experience. One thing that I constantly see is that people's ability to deal with ambiguity. And when you are working on architecture, things are not super clear. So someone who's making a transition from a developer to an architect, this is like a constant pain that I hear from them about, like, you know, things are not clear. I'm not getting a clear message where this piece needs to. And at times I just say, why don't you make an assumption? Why don't you, you know, even if things are ambiguous, just keep progressing. That's one feedback that, you know, that has helped me, that one thing, because because I was coming from a development background. I used to get stories. Here is what you need to write. Now, this is, this is what is expected out of the code that you are going to write. And you know, I'm going to input A and I'm going to get B. And very easy. But when you work in architecture, things are ambiguous. There are, there are different objectives that everybody is coming with in the room. You need to understand people, their objective, what they are trying to achieve, and then based on that and see how they can influence architecture. And at times things are not clear. And this is this is one piece of advice that I give to everyone is even if you're not clear, just keep making progress. Yeah, nice. And and then finally, I guess so you've achieved a massive goal. 2019, you hit the goal. And you're very busy now, right? You're working across multiple projects, you're you're mentoring, you're running this this global CTA Academy, how do you keep learning and developing yourself? It is uh, it is becoming more challenging as, as the time is passing because, um, as I said, I'm, I'm too busy in stuff, but I, I make sure that I take the time out. I complete my release, uh, release exams every time. I'm learning more from the team than I'm actually contributing now. So, you know, people are coming with questions are actually telling me stuff as well. As part of the CT Academy that I'm running, every time there is a, there is a mock that I'm conducting, I'm actually helping from uh, learning from the candidates as well. So they are trying to bring in things. And I, I make my notes as I, you know, as I judge them that this is something that I need to go and learn about. So I think I'm, I'm learning from others now, but then doing my own self-learning or exploring things on my time because I don't have that much time on my hand right now. But learning never stops. Even after I become a CTA, I mean, I just keep learning. I've, I've completed lots of trail as well after I become CTA. So that, that bit is still still there, and I'm, I'm I'm working on that. Yeah, nice, nice. So look, thank you so much. I've uh, I've loved hearing more about your story, and and it's really interesting the amount of people that you're speaking to now from a you know with the aspiration to be a CTA and and going through the mock review boards, and and you're in quite a unique position, I guess, to see where the gaps are on on, on so many people. So hopefully, a lot of listeners that do have that goal of being a CTA will take a lot of value from this and and kind of take on the, the tips that you've given because I think there's some real gems in there. And um, if someone wants to reach out to you directly and, and pick your brains or ask any questions, where's the best place for them to, to hit you up? Uh, I think LinkedIn is the best place to reach out to me. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed the chat and I'm sure sure. our viewers will and listeners will too. Sure, sure. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talent Hub Talk. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you could subscribe and also leave a short review. Um, we're keen for this podcast to reach as many people in the Salesforce ecosystem as possible, and your reviews will help us do that.